in my hotel room and just cut on the, the TV and the Andy Griffith show was on. And it reminded me of this meme that I, I ran across a while back that I just like. If you think about it, the reason Mayberry was so peaceful and quiet was because nobody was married. Andy, Aunt B, Barney, Floyd, Howard, Goober, Gomer, Sam, Ernest T. Bass, Helen, Thelma Lou, Clara, and of course Opie were all single. The only married person was Otis, and he stayed drunk all the time. <laughs> so I um, appreciate y'all coming back even after I pushed you so much. Um, you can see now what I mean by marriage 2.0. I'm baking your noodle, and your honorary PhDs will be available in the back. I think I told this story at the uh, other marriage conference, but I'm going to tell it again because it's so great. There's an old man in my church named Mr. Lemon. We were little, he had a long white beard, and we called him Moses, and um, one day we had a men's prayer breakfast, and we had this guy come speak on marriage, and he was actually a professor of marriage and family therapy, very erudite and very educated and intelligent, and, and he spoke for a very long time about the technicalities and the dyads and the sub-permutations of the marital interaction, and blah, 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 for on and on, it was almost over my head. So he finally finishes and he closes in prayer. And in that little moment between where you say I'm in and before the chairs start to push back and people get up, Mr. Lemon says loud enough for everybody to hear it, I'm just glad I got married for it got so complicated. <laughs> so if you're feeling that now for my conference, yes, right. There's a lot of Mr. Lemon stories. He, he, he was you know, incredibly old. So one day I'm walking past him. I'm probably in college at the time. And I'm passing him in the hall at the church, and he's hobbling. And as I walk past him, I put my thumbs in my pants, and I start going, Mr. Lemon, looking good. And he didn't turn around. He didn't look at me. He just kept hobbling. And I heard him say, look again. I got a lot of Mr. Lemon stories. He's in the God book. He's like, there's Mr. Lemon stories in the God book. Anyway, okay, I'm really excited about this talk I'm about to do. I rarely get to do it publicly. Um, I have a podcast. Um, it's not showing up there. Good Enough Living on the podcast thing. John Cox, Good Enough Living. And basically, it's not like I'm John Cox and my guest today is Jason Sterling. It's uh, more like um, a platform for my talks because people always go, well, how can I get that, you know, parenting conference or that growth conference or whatever? They're all on there. Anyway, it is the number one download on my podcast, like twice as much as number two. People really like it. I've never read anything about it. I've never heard anybody talk about it. I'm astonished at how much it's the only hope in so many situations uh, I'm astonished at how, many, how often I use it in my office, how many times the solution for dealing with a marriage issue or an issue with your parent or whatever has to do with making sense of how to deal with difficult people. Um, it's hard to become a master at, and you will hear from my examples something you're going to be going, whoa, 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 whoa. I, 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 there's no way I could be that that." Johnny on the spot with that kind of response, but you can learn it if you come to my dojo, okay? I will teach you my skills, all right? Pardon me? Yes? 
They'll be far more interested in that than anything I was going to say. There is another box of Chick-fil-A biscuits coming. Uh-huh. Not here yet. And when they come, Lizbeth is going to, like, give me a sign, and we'll start, like, disseminating them like loaves and fishes, okay? All right. So, last conference, we talked about conflict. We talked about, like we alluded to it some last night, like the whole issue of time out when things are getting crazy and, 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 and being able to go bird's eye on a problem. I hope y'all reviewed some of that. If not, go to the podcast and listen to it. But as we said, all of that, and so much of what I do in marriage conferences is predicated on the assumption that both of you are repentant. In other words, both of you are willing to go, yeah, yeah, like, how can we get better at this, babe? Okay? That you acknowledge that. But here's the interesting question and what I deal with all the time at the office. Statistically, maybe 50% of the people. What do we do with those issues and habits and patterns and junk from people in our lives and for the sake of a marriage conference, our spouse, but like I say, it could be your, your parent, <clears throat> and they're not willing to change. They're right. What is your problem? Why are you so sensitive? Really? I was just saying so-and-so. And they had that snarky attitude, or they blow you off, or they don't care. I have a client whose uh, family all walks on eggshells around mom. Like, she comes in from work, and you can feel the tension in the room, and she looks at him, and the first thing out of her mouth is, this is why I'm in a bad mood all the time. Okay? And she storms upstairs and all the kids scatter like deer, you know. Or you come to these people with a problem or an issue. Like, hey, babe, can I talk to you about this thing? And they're like, oh, my God, why do you have to make such a big deal out of everything? You know? Or those people whose go-to tone of voice is kind of condescending. Like, you did what? Okay? These kind of things happen all the time in marriage, and they're in the background, and they will erode and eat away at you. Um, how about that? Like we said just last night, the repeat offender. They, they keep, you know, um, jackknifing you, undermining you at a, at a party, for instance, and then they apologize, but then they do it again. In other words, how do we respond in a Christ-like, powerful, loving, strong, growth-producing way that protects me and actually helps them grow to out-of-control aspects of our spouse, or mom, or anybody when they don't care. Um, or a different way of saying it is, how do you respond just to uh, regular people when they're being difficult? Because face it, all of us can be snarky and difficult all the time. So this is how to deal with difficult people, or how to deal with regular people when they're just being really jerky, okay? And do so, get this, and do so in a way that not only protects you from their junk, because they're not going to stop on their own, all right, but also it will help them grow. In other words, this is God's medicine for people who are unrepentant and jerky, okay? I cannot tell you how much I deal with this in my office. So I want you to have these categories for yourself. Every family has a controller or a bully or an alpha or a powder I'm not talking about like domestic violence or anything. I'm talking about nitpickers, that person you got to tiptoe around. Oh my gosh, we could never say that to her, All right? You know that person? Maybe you are that person. Anyway, I know I am sometimes. So how do you respond to those people? Well, I'm going to tell you, all right? So let's begin. 
Let's begin at the beginning. It's a very nice place to start. All right. So, as I said last night, the first time God meets somebody, his first question about them is this. Are they repentant or unrepentant? Can I tell you how much that is important if you're thinking about dealing with conflictual issues in relationships? And I don't hear that talked about very much in the church, which we'll get to. God's first question is, are they open and humble and willing to change? Are you coming to me kind of hat in hand saying, Lord, help me out here? Or are they kind of comfortable being jerks? Or they feel like they're kind of better than everybody? Or they feel like, oh my gosh, you're so bad. And they keep bringing it up. I'm going to remind you again of that way you hurt me. Are they humble or are they not? Okay? And his next step in dealing with us there is predicated on this answer. Are you humble or are you repentant or non-repentant? Okay? God often starts there. We don't. The vibe I often feel in Christian culture, and there's a sense in which my job, I'm essentially a missionary to Christians. <laughs> in other words, I live in, in my life with Christians who are burdened, and I try to figure out like how to help them get free and unburdened and live rich lives in Christ. Um, when I started writing the parenting book, I had this real question like, should I make this for like parents in general? And I thought, John, you've always been a missionary to Christians, write it to Christians. Um, one of the things that I see missing, though, in Christian culture, and one of the things I want to kind of help broaden for you, is this kooky kind of vibe that is Christians, and especially in marriage, that our primary tool for engaging one another, even with difficult issues, should always be kindness and gentleness and lovingness and love, and we don't keep records of wrongs. And we're going to talk about this again when we talk about forgiveness later this morning. But I hear things like, yeah, he's a really cruel person, but are you turning the other cheek? You know, are you, are you submitting to them like Christ? Are you showing Christ to them? You know? And like, that's what being Christ-like means, is being this kind of milk toast who just sort of like, I'm going to forgive and be sweet no matter what you do. And maybe that's what Peter means when he says, win them over without a word. All right? So I'm constantly dealing with these, quote, nice people in my office who are dealing with somebody who can be kind of hurtful and jerky, and they're sort of feeling victimized and hurt by it, but they feel like they kind of have to live in this Jesus victim position uh, that says, you know, well, that's just the way they are, okay? But they live being harmed by this person. I have a client right now whose wife is, is caustic and irritable and, and cutting and critical and he cannot stand up to her. And we've been, I've, been, I've been putting him in my Jedi training to try to teach him some of this stuff. Because the only thing that's going to help that marriage is for him to learn to lovingly set limits on what she's doing. But he's been hesitant. But one of the things that he told me the other day that's given me a little leverage is he says, you know, it's interesting. When she's at home, the children all disappear. And then when she comes back, when she, when she leaves to go to work, it's like, they all start emerging out of their rooms. You know, man is no longer in the forest. You know, and it's like, there's the safety. And I said, dude, you keep kind of pushing back on me about how you don't want to be strong and powerful with your hurtful wife. But can you see the cost this is creating for your family? Okay. So I see these people who are always like, you know, feeling like I need to live out Christ to these people as if that means something being really nice. And the perps over here are having a great time. It's candy land for them. It's narcissist Disneyland. I can do whatever I want. Nobody stops me. So this nice thing is really not what I hear the Bible saying. 
by the way. This isn't just psychology. I see the Bible constantly talking about different categories of people, different ways in which we respond to people. Um, I think I quoted 1 Thessalonians 5.14 to you last night. You notice Paul saying there, it's just a little example, but like, you know, um, help the weak, rebuke the unruly, be patient with all men. It's like he's got this list, this recipe of interacting with different kinds of people. So are these categories for you to choose from before you pick your intervention or how you want to relate to them. Now the tool might be love. If somebody's humble and sweet, yeah. But it might be limits, okay? As I said, the first question God is asking is, is this person repentant or unrepentant? So, let's think. What do repentant people need? If you're a screwed up person, which is um, a redundancy, isn't it? Like, if you're a three-sided triangle, um, if you're a screwed up person um, and you are humble about it, if you're repentant, what do you need? Repentant people need love and they need restoration and they need understanding and they need growth and kind of those yummy ingredients we're talking about that kind of help those little kid baggage parts of us grow up. Good stuff. What does an unrepentant person need? Well, technically, they need to become a repentant person, right? Now, in God's universe, what that usually means is some kind of engagement with truth and limits. This is basic principle of God growth, is that if you're repentant, you're going to grow by saying, I'm broken and I'm hurting, and we need arms wrapped around us, weeping with us when we weep. But if you're an unrepentant person, God doesn't say, well, then I'm just going to love you into obedience. An unrepentant person will take that as license and drive you into the ground, boy. All right? There's got to be a different ingredient that's given when we're unrepentant. Go read the Bible. If you do not work, you shall not eat. If a brother sins against you, go tell him his fault. As for a person who turns up, turns up division, well, after warning him once and warning him twice, have nothing more to do with him. And that is talking about Christians. I was talking to somebody earlier and they were saying, wouldn't it be exciting if we could build more of that body of Christ thing like we were talking about last night, where we actually start to be that second family and rebuild. And I said, absolutely. Here's the problem that I usually see. Our Christian culture has lost the notion of what it looks like to be powerful to the jerks and the hurtful people and the unrepentant. Because half of the people in this body of Christ's second family are all too excited to take advantage of you and criticize you and tell you you're the bad one. All right? So part of what we need to do as married people as a body of Christ, as Christians, as dealing with difficult family members, is learn what it means to become very limit-setting. And when God talks about these kind of things in the Bible, he's talking about having a very heads-up intervention with these difficult people because not only will it protect you from their jerkiness, it's the only thing that will redeem them. The meanest thing you can do to somebody the cruelest thing you can do to somebody is to protect them from the consequences of their sin. In other words, what's God's worst judgment on people? He gives them over. He's like, okay, I'm going to take away all my truth and limits. Have at it. As C.S. Lewis said, there's two kinds of people in the world. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. All right, so actually this truth limit setting thing 
is life-giving to them, but it's going to help you from getting beat up. And I see this work like 90% of the time, I kid you not. I find that once the victim, the oppressed spouse or whatever, grows up, the perp gets better, the perp gets strong, they grow up. And frankly, this is marriage therapy for an unrepentant person. I can't tell you how much marriage therapy I do with one spouse. I have a joke with my colleagues. The best marriage therapy I do is individual therapy with one of the spouses. Because if you have an unrepentant jerky person, you know, he says, hey, babe, like, you know, we're really struggling. Let's go see John Cox. And she comes one time, and if I push back on her and she's gone, that's a bunch of psychobabble. And she won't ever come back to therapy. So I end up seeing individuals a lot who live with people who are like, nah, I don't need anything. Therapy is a bunch of junk. The shrink, he's a... Is a, what did I get called the other day? A charlatan. And I bet he's not even married. I'm like, yeah, I got this at a pawn shop. I just think it makes, gives me cred, you know? It's like, half of the marriages I work with work like this, okay? So a question I've had in my practice for a long time and kind of a pet project of mine is, what's the most powerful Christ-like way to respond to difficult, unrepentant people, or to nice people, good people who are just having an off day, okay? Think, what are our typical responses? <clears throat> I have a couple, uh, uh, had a couple, they're, they're better now. Um, but basically, uh, she approached him, here's an example, she's approaching him complaining about a work problem. Here's this thing that happened at work, and this is terrible, and I hated this, and I hated that. And now the husband responds with a recommendation of how she can fix this problem. Big surprise there, ladies, right? Okay. Um, which I obviously is not the best way to lead with a, well, here's what I think you ought to do kind of thing. Um, but when he does that, she just goes off on him. She just unloads. You see, this is why I never talk to you. Everything is my fault. You just push back on me, and you never support me, and you never have. And basically, he goes postal on him. Now, he's a real compliant kind of guy, and he immediately goes in to defend. No, babe, that's not what I was saying. That's not what I meant. And she's like, oh, yeah. And she's going off on him, okay? What's another response when we, somebody goes off on us? We attack back. Okay, fine then. Never talk to me about your work problems again. In other words, you're going to be a jerky bully, so I'm going to be a jerky bully too. Other, uh, we can cower. We can, we can just like, um, I have a client whose husband goes off on her when he just has his rages, and she says that it's like a ride at the fair. She says, once you're on it, you just can't get off. You just have to close your eyes and wait until it's over. She told me after a recent one, she said, I just sat there and took it. Um, our last one, we use he language or she language to our therapist. In other words, I just call it that because I have so many clients come in and go, you're not going to believe what he did today. You're not going to believe what she said to me. And um, I actually have a guy who needs to do that. Like he, he insists on using she language about his wife. So we've made a deal and I tell him that he gets 20 minutes, the first 20 minutes of the session, he can talk about how bad his wife is, all he wants. And it's like, Okay, are you ready to like grow? You know, we got to shift gears here. 
Anyway, pick a card, any card. These are a lot of ways we respond to people who act jerky to us. He tends to be really kind of compliant and typically goes into defend himself mode. Like, that's not what I'm saying, baby. No, okay. All right? So they live this lifestyle in which she's constantly railing on him when he doesn't, like, dance monkey dance the way that she wants him to. And he's always trying to convince her that he's not the bad guy. Think happy thoughts, okay? But what he started doing since he's entered my school of Taekwondo is when she starts going off on him, what he says is, whoa, whoa, look, I really care if I missed you there and if it didn't feel good to you, and I am really willing to talk about that. And I'm willing to learn, but I'm not comfortable with you scolding me. And I'm not really going to sit here and be scolded, okay? So we can either reset, take a time out and talk about this, or I'm going to need to leave the room. Okay. Well, actually, in this context, they were driving, and she wouldn't stop. Fortunately, he was driving. He pulled the car. I was so proud of him. He pulled the car off the side of the road, cut the engine off, got out and leaned against the car, flipping the keys, saying, you can yell all you want. You can yell at me all day long if you need to. I will not be around to hear it. In other words, as we'll say in a minute, he set a limit on himself, what he was willing to tolerate with how she treated him. I see so many people who will sit there and let a a jerky spouse yell at them. It's like, you know, I I, I had a guy in my office a while back, and he's saying, like, she just stood there and yelled at me for like four hours. And I looked at his feet. He's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm looking at your feet. I wonder if you had feet, like why you didn't, Stand up and walk out of the room after, you know, 30 seconds of that. Are you missing feet? In other words, we live in this he language, she language, blame position. Instead of taking the responsibility like he did to start learning to say, you know what, I'm not really willing to do that. And we can talk more about what happens. Like people say, I will set a limit to my spouse and say, if you're going to continue shouting at me, I'm going to need to go in the next room. And they go, well, what happens if they follow you to the next room? Okay, well, then go outside, walk around the block. What if they follow you around the block? I say, well, get in the car and roll the windows up and cut the radio on. And they say, well, what if they bang on the car? We can take this as far as we want. I'm like, well, then back out and drive off. What if they stand behind the car? I'm like, then call the police. I mean, we could go as far as we need to go here, okay? What I want you to learn here is that when we're dealing with people who are hurtful, if you miss the fact that you have gobs of power, then they will run you into the ground and you will feel like a victim and they will never get better and you will hate your life, okay? So I'm wanting to try to talk about the power that oppressed people have in relationships with bullies, okay? So when you do this, it's not only a way to set limits on them to protect you, it's also the only thing that helps them grow. Remember the Q&A last night, what makes out-of-control parts of us grow? Having some insight and understanding. With an unrepentant person, we have to do them in reverse. Having limits set on my behavior, consequences to it. And then later on, usually I get unhappy enough to where I actually am willing to ask what's going on for me. So it protects you and it makes them grow. Two for one. It's a floor cleaner and a dessert topping. Y'all know that reference? Saturday Night Live? The best shine you've ever tasted. Anyway. (laughs) The old guys get it. (laughs) Same ones who got the Andy Griffith joke. 
Anyway, what I've got him doing essentially is helping by leaving her. I'm helping him let her experience some of the loneliness she is creating by being such an attacker. And it stopped this dance. It worked. Once he no longer tolerated her treating him like that, once he set a limit on himself, stopped cowering, didn't fight back, didn't defend, it actually made her grow. She's gotten in therapy. She's got a great therapist. She's doing cool work, okay? So what I usually hear is we look at these situations and we think, oh my gosh, what a jerk, what a poor spouse. I can't believe she has to live with him. Or Jesus would just forgive her because, you know, 70 times 7, all right? But that's for repentant people, not unrepentant people, okay? And I found as the oppressed party gains power, A, the jerk stops being a jerk, B, they grow, C, the oppressed person starts liking their life a lot better. So this is heat big juju, okay? So I want to talk about some levels of intervention with jerky people. And like, I've taught some of the people in my life these interventions to use on me because I'm kind of an aggressive guy and I can be a jerky person. And I kind of want to say, okay, look, this is a nine millimeter. Just shoot me right here with it if I do this to you again, okay? That's where I want them. So let's look at some levels of intervention. Um, and these are going to be kind of a hierarchy. We're going to start really low and we're going to go more and more intense, like Matthew 18, okay? But what are our options? Our title page is kind of this. You can't control anybody, but in other words, we can't control these people into not to stop being unpleasant. But that doesn't mean that we can't influence them, intervene with them, okay? So you look at the story I just told you, and um, at first glance, it can look like our options are either to sort of give up and live under her rule, or to sort of fight back and bully her and control her back, or to give up and live under her you know, authority, or to finally convince her that he is a supportive guy, uh, so what are we supposed to do? All right, the fact that you can't control them doesn't mean you can't influence them. In other words, you can't control anybody. Get this, you can't control anybody. But you can relate to them in a way that makes them have to learn to control themselves. That's what God does. You can't control, but we can intervene. You can't change a jerky person, but you can certainly bring enough frustration and difficulty and unpleasantness into their lives that they become more inclined to change themselves. This is what God does all the time. This is what discipline, God's discipline is and trials is. So we have a lot of power here. Now I want to look at six levels of intervention with difficult people. Um, <clears throat> first level, kind of lightweight, but actually it's going to have more power than you think. You're dealing with somebody who enjoys criticizing you. You're dealing with somebody who's a slob and leaves their junk everywhere, kind of expecting you to clean it up, and they don't really care that that's a problem for you, no matter how many times you ask. Or you live with somebody who's cut you down in front of friends and kind of enjoys it. When they do these kind of things, I want you to first intervene by doing something really complicated and really radical and really out there, man. I want you to ask them, stop. Okay? In other words, I want you to ask them, would you be willing to stop? 
you know, you can get real intense on Sunday mornings. It happens a lot. Would you be willing to look at that? Would you be willing to not use words about me like you're so stupid? That feels really bad. Would you be willing to not do that? I love that phrase. Write it down. Would you be willing? Would you be willing to stop interrupting me at parties and hijacking the conversation? Okay. Would you be willing? Now, right now you're probably thinking, well, that's dumb and easy. I mean, they're just going to say no, you know. It's not going to work. And perhaps it won't. We're just at level one here, man. This is like pea shooter. We haven't even gotten to like firearms yet, all right? We got, you know, just spit wads right now. But think about it. A, when was the last time you simply felt asked in a conflict to change? Think what we usually do in our marriages. You know, we demand, we withdraw, we criticize. I mean, why can't you just empty the dishwasher sometime? How, when was the last time you felt simply asked? Would you be willing to do that? I even invite people to say, to give their spouse permission to not do it. I know you get really busy, and I know it's hard for you to keep up with recording your checks and your checkbook. So I would understand it if you can't do this. But would you be willing to keep up with your checks and the checkbook better? And if you can't, I totally get it. I don't know what it is. This is sneaky psychology voodoo. But if you give somebody permission to say no to you as you ask them, for some reason it kind of inclines them more likely to do it. The real hardcore jerks it won't. But it's fascinating how much people resist that feeling of being controlled if you, if you don't ask them, all right? But that's just one. Okay, when was the last time you felt asked? Asking has sweet power. But number two Asking isn't, we're not just being nice here. Let me tell you what's, what's lying underneath this. There's a hook to this asking thing. Would you be willing, asking someone, would you be willing? I'm not nagging them, I'm not begging them, I'm not angry at them. But saying in a loving, powerful, humble way, would you be willing, actually forces people to have to be confronted with what they value and how they choose to live your life. In other words, what I'm saying in essence is, would you be willing to do this thing? Means I'm not going to disappear. I'm not going to cower. This is not about me nagging you. This is not about me controlling you. The willingness is yours. And the unwillingness is yours. And you're actually going to have to kind of sit there and say, no, I am not willing. Wow. And when they say that, I want to say, wow. Okay. Thank you for answering my question. But what you've left hanging in the silence of that room is a really loud, interesting statement about this person's heart. In the context of no nagging, control, jerkiness, bullying, anything, my spouse is asking me, am I willing to do this thing for them? And my answer is simply no. Wow. Do you care to look at what that says about you? It's like that old Martin Luther story. When he was talking about justification by grace alone, somebody pushed back and said, well, I mean, if that's true, if God forgives us and accepts us by his own grace and mercy, that means I could just live as I please. And Martin Luther said, yeah. Now, what pleases you? 
kind of a wake-up call for me, okay? Notice also that I'm being kind here. You will hear throughout this whole thing that I'm not going to be unkind. This is very important. Anger is how we act when we don't feel powerful, okay? We're going to be powerful here. There's an inverse relationship. We uh, talk about this in the parenting book. There's an inverse relationship between how angry you are as a spouse or a parent or whatever and how powerful you feel. To the degree that you feel powerless and weak, you will be a more angry, jerky person. It's one of the ways we're going to get the bullies later. One of the ways, reasons this works is because most jerky, angry, finger-pointing, blamer, attacker people are very, very weak or they wouldn't have to be such jerks. Strong people don't have to be jerks, okay? So to the degree that you are powerful, you will, to the, to the degree you're angry, you are not feeling powerful. And this is fun. As you learn to be more powerful, you will find yourself being less angry. You want to work on your anger issue? I want to be thinking where your power is, okay? So, we're going to develop ways of engaging this that don't have to be angry, um, because you're going to be very much in command of what's going on, and we don't need anger to do that, okay? It's like Patrick Swayze said in that classic film, Roadhouse. Um, be nice. Be nice. Time is, until it's time to not be nice. I don't think we're going to need to not be nice today. I think we can be just powerful. So we're going to begin just by um, asking them. Second thing we're going to do, our second intervention, and we go up a notch. We're going to start speaking back to them something about the truth. We're going to talk to them about reality. In other words, we're going to start talking back to them like a mirror about what it is they are creating, what it is they are happening, what their choices are costing. And here's where we really get rolling, okay? Basically, one way to say this is we're going to talk to them about the truth of what they're creating. No judgment. No evaluation, no condemnation, no demand for a change. I'm not going to be telling them to be different here. I call this being a psychological mirror, as I mentioned last night. Think about it. A mirror doesn't nag. A mirror doesn't judge. A mirror doesn't say you better change. A mirror just says, you got a piece of spinach on your tooth, okay? Now, you can leave it there if you want. And James would say you were someone who he would call a fool if you look in a mirror and turn away. But here's the truth. So I had a client years back who came up with a beautiful and her husband was always really hurtful to her. He didn't, she, didn't, uh, she didn't do what he wanted and he would just start going off on her in a really condemning, hurtful way. And she came in one day and she said, this is what I said back to him. I, I wrote it down. Here's the quote. She looks at him. Here's the tone. Listen to her tone too. Every time you treat me this way, I feel something in me just feel just pull further and further away from you. I feel something more and more in my heart just become more distant every time you treat me like this. Sweet. In other words, she's not going, quit talking to me like that. She's saying, I just want you to see what this is creating. You lose more and more and more of me every time you do this. No demand, no threat. She's just talking about what's happening, okay? And hear her tone She's powerful. This isn't a rant. This isn't a plea. She's saying, here's the truth. If you spend a dollar, you have a dollar less. Okay? 
That's what a psychological mirror is. So your mom's visiting, okay? And she's all critical about how you parent. Don't, de- don't, de- don't defend. Don't explain. Don't fight back. But mom, I'm trying to do, we're just trying to do so and so and so and so, mom. I want you to hold up the mirror and say, wow, mom, it sounds like you have really need, needed to be thinking a lot about my parenting. I'm just giving you information. And mom's going to go, well, I've had years of experience doing this, and I would think that you would want my help. And I'm like, I totally understand it, and I appreciate you giving it. Um, I can see you've thought a lot about it. Jerky, controlly people cannot stand you just simply showing that to them. Okay? Psychological mirror. I'm not going to play with a jerky person. I'm not going to interact with them. They can play with themselves, okay? And we're going to show them themselves. I had this aunt once who um, I did something. I was an adult. I was in my 30s. And she started scolding me and shaming me. John Cox, I cannot believe that you did so and 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 so. I'm a psychologist at this point in my life. Anyway, I looked at her and I said, Aunt Sally... You're scolding me. And she starts, they don't know what to do with it. I didn't cower. I didn't fight back. I didn't say, well, I mean, that wasn't what I was trying to do, Aunt Sally, where we usually go. I just held up the mirror. You're scolding me. Shut her down, okay? Look. Your wife says, you come in from playing golf. She says, oh, I bet you're tired. You've been playing golf all day. One of my husbands said, are you wanting me to feel bad? Are you asking that in order for me to feel shame for playing golf all day? Is that what you're wanting? Not quit talking to me like that, or I'll play golf if I want to, or will you have your friends? I'm just going to show them the truth. God does this all the time. Think about him in the prophets, okay? What does he say? I made you my bride and you turned from me. He's telling them the truth, okay? Now, later on, he's going to say, I hope you like the weather in Babylon, but we're not there yet, okay? First, he's just telling them the truth. Um... I'm about at a stopping point. You ready? Hang on just a second. Let me finish the God thing. He's going to send them to Babylon later, and we're going to have consequence to these people later. But first off, he's just telling the truth. I brought you to myself. I took you out on eagle's wings. The ox and the donkey know their master, but my people do not know me. Prophets are gorgeous literature of betrayal. He's telling them the truth. And one of the interventions with hurtful people is, you know, when you don't get things the way you want, you can become really, really hurtful. Notice I'm not demanding, I'm just showing. Here's my favorite theme verse for this talk. Psalm 18, 26. I just, I found this and it knocked my socks off. This is this talk of how God thinks about it. You ready? David says to God, to the pure, you show yourself pure. 
And to the blameless, you show yourself blameless. And to the wicked, you show yourself shrewd. This is a class on shrewdness. Clever intervention with difficult people. Lizbeth, you back there? All right, she can catch me at the next break. Here's another way of talking about it. Another thing a psychological mirror does is instead of engaging in dialogue with somebody who's being hurtful, we're going to go bird's eye on them. Remember bird's eye from the last conference? We step back and kind of go fly on the wall and talk about what's happening. A repentant person can go bird's eye on themselves, but an unrepentant person can't. Um, I use this. Um, this is an example from last night. I used it with Catherine about, I'm in college. You can't tell me what to do. I went observing what was happening. I talked bird's eye. I said, so what you're saying is, since you're in college, I can no longer speak into your life. And you saw how it backed her down. There's something about just that observational position, um, which I love and is so powerful. I was visiting a family. I was doing a conference in Texas, and I was visiting this family. And I noticed that their, their young teenage uh, son was a real snob about clothes. And um, we were sitting around on, on Sunday afternoon, and he looks at me, and he said, your shoes are ugly. Now think of your options. I could go compliant. Well, I mean, I, I kind of thought they were cool. I mean, you know, I could go defensive. Well, so are yours. I used a psychological mirror. He said, your shoes are ugly. And I said, and you think a whole lot about what other people wear. And frankly, it doesn't feel real good. He was dumbfounded, okay? I talked about what was happening. Bullies do not like to be shown how crazy they are, okay? They don't want to be shown what it costs them. This is bully judo, okay? So Norma uses it on me. I'll say, oh, did you forget apples again at the grocery? And she'll say, are you meaning that to be mean? Beautiful mirror. I did mean it to be me. Good shooting norms. Okay? Okay, speak the truth. We're going to ask questions. We're going to speak the truth. Next level, we're going to start setting limits on what we are willing to do in the relationship. Okay? In other words, we can't change them, so we are going to change us. This has so much power. Because not only is it going to get you out of the game of being treated like garbage by these people, it's going to inter engage them with some experiential consequences. Remember experiential consequences from last, last night? The only way we change out-of-control behavior? Are these things, themes starting to tie together for you? Uh, I had a couple once who, um, the wife was very, very critical. And here's one of their dances. Remember dances? He would come home from work. She would say what happened at work today. He would tell her what happened at work, and then she would criticize him for it. Wash, rinse, repeat. Okay? That was kind of their thing. So I've been working with him because she won't come to therapy because she doesn't have any problems. He does. This is 50% of the marriage therapy I do. And I've been teaching him kung fu. 
and he's telling me he bought a new building, and she knows that he was interested in buying this building, and he said, I know that she's going to ask me about the building, and I said, well, hashtag not first rodeo, what do you think is going to happen? And he said, I think that I'm going to say, yeah, I bought the building, and then she's going to say, oh my gosh, I can't believe you did that, she's going to criticize me for it. And he, I, I said, that's, he said, that's what's going to happen. I said, right. In other words, it's Lucy, Charlie Brown, and the football. You know what's going to happen, you know? So what do you want to do? And he says, well, I don't want to do that again. And I said, okay, you're, you're getting your chops here. What do you need to do? What do you want to do? And so he went observational and talked about what was happening and set a limit for himself. And he walks in the house and she says, what would you do about the building? And he says, you know, I love you. And I really would like to talk to you about the building. But one of the things that tends to happen when we interact is that you ask me, here I'm going bird's eye, you ask me what's going on and then I tell you, and then usually you get real critical to me about it. And that really feels bad and I kind of don't want to keep doing that anymore. So I don't think I'm going to talk to you about the building. In other words, what most people who are oppressed by their spouses will do is go ahead and beat Charlie Brown and try to kick that football again while Lucy moves it out of the way and then come and tell me what a bad person Lucy is for moving the football. And I'm like, why did you try to kick it again? Why did you tell her about the building? Because you know she's going to criticize you about it. And you can't control her. You can't say, quit being so critical. But you can say, you know what, as long as you're critical, I don't think I'm going to share stuff about work with you. And what I'm doing is I'm changing my own choices as a result of how they're hurting me. Okay? You can't make anybody change, but a tennis game stops pretty quick if you stop hitting the ball back. Okay? So a limit is basically going to say, you can treat me any way you want. I can't stop you from being hurtful. But the way you treat me will affect the way I relate to you. That's just the way it is. Now, this is not punishment. Okay? It's a natural consequence. If a stove burns you, you pull your hand back. You're not punishing the stove. Your hand doesn't like being around hot things. Okay? This is actually more me taking responsibility for being willing, my willingness apparently to stay under your rule, okay? Now, under, underneath all this, you can see that inherent in what I'm saying is a good rule, a good limit is always a rule about me, not a demand on them. Notice I'm not saying, quit criticizing my building. You can't control anybody else. You can set a limit on you. A good limit doesn't say, stop criticizing me. A good limit doesn't say, quit drinking so much. A good limit's a rule about me. And you've been drinking, and I don't really talk to inebriated people. Get it? I'm going to change me. Now, what I don't want you to underestimate is the amount of power it has in the life of an acting out hurtful person for you to shift your place with them. For that inebriated person, they no longer get you around. It's fascinating the amount of power that you will have. Okay? Another example of limits. Maybe it's your dad, maybe it's your spouse, whatever. 
you know, there's a lot of spouses who love to live in a position of, we have marriage problems because of you. You know, if only you did so-and-so. Now, what do we usually do? Uh-uh, not me, you. And we go into the sort of badness hot potato. Or the spouse, maybe you've wronged them or hurt them. Uh, maybe uh, you've wronged them or hurt them in the past. Maybe it's been a legitimate injury. You've really screwed up. But they will bring it up forever and ever and never let it go. And they'll keep driving it on you. And it's almost like they're glad they had this over you. I run into a lot of people like that. But anyway, that spouse who's constantly basically, well, I mean, things would be fine if you would just do so-and-so. And they are very, very certain about the fact that the problem in the relationship is you. I see this all the time. Here's what I want you to say. God, you know what? I, um, I know you've talked to me so many times about this thing about me that, I, that you think really is a problem in our relationship. And heaven knows it is. I'm not really willing to interact with you anymore about it. Certainly not today. Um, until, let me put it this way. Uh, until I feel from you some level of curiosity about perhaps what your role could be too. In other words, if what you're saying is you want a relationship in which we both get curious about the ways in which we're screwing up our marriage, I'm first on the sign-up sheet. But if we're going to have another John's bad and let's talk about it conversation I don't think I'm going to have those conversations anymore. And I tell my clients to do that, and they'll go, oh my gosh, she wouldn't speak to me for three days. And I'm like, not that, anything but that. Anyway, we'll talk about passive aggression in a minute, okay? They will punish you some for this, and we'll talk about that. But do you hear what he did? She's like, it's you, you, you. And I'm going to go, well, you're probably right. But I am not willing, rule for me, to interact with you anymore about our dynamics until I get some sense of curiosity from you. Like, I wonder if I'm also contributing something here. You know, I keep bringing up this injury, you know, three years later, four years later, ten years later. Are you willing to get curious as to maybe what you might need in order to be able to let that injury go? We'll talk in the next talk that we only heal injuries through real connection. But after a season of that, you can kind of smell it in the room. Somebody leaves that place of injury and starts being in a place where they're just going to drive and obsess about that injury and attack you with it. I had a guy get mad at me in my office once, and uh, he literally stood up. I'm sitting in my, you know, psychologist chair, and he literally stood up and stood over me with his finger in my face. I'll tell you this, Dr. Cox. You know, and he starts going off at me. What do you do? What do you do? You fight back? Get out of my face, man. No, I looked at his finger. I didn't look at his face. I looked at his finger. And I said, I don't talk to fingers. And he says, well, that's ridiculous because so-and-so. I said, I don't talk to fingers. In other words, rule about me, I am not going to engage this junk. Now, if I had said, dude, you cannot yell at me in my office. I'm, I mean, that might have been fun, but I'm engaging this guy. I don't do this. If you are willing to engage a person who's treating you in a critical way, I said go take out the garbage, and you go, okay. You're giving them a signed affidavit. I, John Cox, do give you permission to treat me like garbage. 
when it's time to take out the garbage, and I will actually interact with you, and that is legit. And I will hand it to you, and then I'll go tell my therapist, I can't believe they're so mean to me. Because you play. There's so much power that you oppressed spouses have about this. Okay? I was talking about this in Houston once, and this guy had told me um, the year later when I was back, he said, my wife totally guilt trips me when I do this now. I'm like, babe, you're really getting kind of hostile and hurtful, and I'm not really willing to interact with you when you're going to talk to me like that. And, and she's like, well, I guess you've made it very clear where our marriage stands in your priorities. You're just not even going to try anymore. Hmm. See, I told you they would punish you for it. I said, so what'd you do? And he said, I used one of your lines. I said, wow, honey, you sound really, really, really certain that that's what's going on. You sound really, really certain that the reason I'm setting a limit on how you're treating me is because I don't care about our marriage. Do you want to ask me any questions about that? Or do you just want to stay certain? One of my clients this week was saying their spouse, when they do this kind of stuff, goes, you just don't love me. I can feel it. You don't love me. Now, what are our natural inclinations? I do too. But I'm, I'm just trying to do what Cox told me in this conference. What, you know, I want to say, wow, you sound really certain that I don't love you. Do you want to ask me any questions? I'm open to questions. Or you can just stay certain. You see how I'm basically saying, I'm not orbiting your little planet anymore. You can do your control planet, but I'm kind of breaking orbit, leaving the solar system. And I will come back the moment you, you're, you become repentant and open, all right? <clears throat> what about silent treatment? Let's talk about passive aggression. You know, monosyllables, silent treatment, um, sort of they're obviously angry and kind of suck in the air out of the room, and you go, are you okay? I'm like, no, yeah, yeah, I'm fine, absolutely fine. What do you do about that? How do we do with passive aggression? By the way, C.S. Lewis said that um, silent treatment is blackmail. <laughs> Like I said, those people who say, you know, if I did that, she wouldn't speak to me for days. How do you respond to that? Well, number one, think about it like this. Let's think about it psychologically first. What's the toxin to silent treatment? I was working with this family once, and, and the dad was kind of a bully in the family. And I was talking to them about engaging him and standing up to him. And they said, oh, oh, he, he would, it, it would be terrible if we said that. And I said, really? Like, what would happen? Will he like start breaking arms and stuff? And they said, no, he'd get real quiet. Like, 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 like poison quiet? Like what, what would the quiet do? What damage does quiet do? What is the damage that quiet does? What is the toxin, the hook of silent treatment? Why does it feel bad? Rejection. Okay, in other words, technically what silent treatment uses is your own shame against you. In other words, I'm not going to talk to you. And the point is an implied shame. In other words, you're so disgusting. You're so horrible. You've hurt me so deeply that I can't even, I can't even talk to you. 
you're so bad. Okay? In other words, they use shame to punish you. Okay? I'm not going to actually take any responsibility to engage this problem. I'm just going to create this really loud silence that punishes you. So what do we do with it? Number one, if you want to deal with a passive-aggressive person, A, learn to manage your shame. In other words, if it feels that bad to you for your spouse to say that you're bad, if it feels that scary and rejected and painful and frightening to you for your spouse to give you silent treatment, then get thee to a therapist, okay? <laughs> I told my uh, son-in-law, uh, he was telling me, oh, I couldn't say that to this, you know, my daughter. She wouldn't speak to me for days, and I used that line. No, anything but that. I'm deprived of moi. Anyway, um, he hasn't actually said that to her gratefully, but he said that gave him so much to realize, yeah, why am I so afraid of that? Anyway, if you're that controlled by someone else's shame, then really take a look at it, because all they're doing is being silent and showing you how angry they are and how much they don't like you. There's really nothing toxic there except what's inside of you. All right? Secret of the universe, spiritually and psychologically. No one else has the power to shame you, scold you, criticize you, or condemn you unless something in you already has ears to hear it. You hear me? Oh, I am so going to repeat it. No one else has the power to condemn you or judge you or criticize you unless something in you has ears to hear it. In other words, they say, oh my gosh, you're such a bad Christian. Now, something in you is going to be saying, see, that's what I've been telling you. In other words, we have that voice inside of us. If you said to me, I think you're a terrible psychologist, I might go, oh my gosh, maybe I have ears to hear, maybe I'm not that good. But if you said, you're a terrible accountant, I'd be like, what? Okay, I don't have any ears for that. I know I'd be a bad accountant. So what else you got, you know? In other words, unless we already have something in us that's generating condemnation, someone else is going to say, you're so bad. And we're going to go, okay, you don't know the half of it. Actually, I'm very bad. Um, who screwed up your potty training? Like, why do you need to be so critical? What's your problem? Because this ain't about me. This is about you. Recognize that when you talk about she's so judgmental. Well, okay, she's judgmental, but what's going on inside of you that has ears to hear it, okay? Did I say it enough times? So ask why the shame hooks you. Secondly, pull out that psychological mirror. It's going to be your tool. Well, I love this with passive aggressives. Basically, we're going to make the covert overt. Passive aggression is this covert, like, punishment. I'm not going to say anything, but just it's going to be in the background that I'm really mad, and you're really bad, and I'm going to let it punish you for days. I like to make that overt. I want to say, hey, babe, I'm kind of getting the vibe that you're really upset and mad and cold, and there's some kind of an issue. Well, I don't know what you mean. Or a man. What? No, I'm fine. Okay. I don't, make, I don't want to make it just woman voices. Because men can be delightfully passive aggressive. Anyway, I want to say, I'm kind of picking up on this vibe, and they're like, I don't know what you mean. I want to say, well, um, 
that's fine. If that's what you need to do, then cool, be there. I want you to know that I'm open to talking about whatever issue you've got. Um, whenever you want to, I'll address that problem. Otherwise, um, I'm, we're cool then, okay? You, you're saying everything's fine, and I think everything's fine, and it's been a couple of weeks since I watched Thor Ragnarok, so I'm going to do that, okay? And what you've done is you've called out their passive aggression and essentially said, you are using a bullet against me, and I'm really kind of, I'm okay with bullets. Shoot the hostage. Do you remember um, Speed, County Reeves? What do you do? Terrorist as a hostage. What do you do? You shoot the hostage. Take him out of the equation, right? Anyway, what shamers and scolders and punishers do is hold you hostage. If you don't do this, then I'm going to think you're really bad. And I'm going to go, okay, I'm really bad. You can hate me, but I'm not going to be your little puppet anymore. I'm not going to live trying to please you and hope, hope you don't get mad at me, okay? By the way, what does God do when people turn? Let's say that passive-aggressive person said, yeah, I really am angry at you. And what you did really felt bad. What do you do then? We do what God does. We drop weapons, we open arms, we welcome them home. Oh my gosh, I totally get how that would have felt terrible to you. Thank you for talking to me about it. Okay? In other words, we always welcome them back. But we're warriors first. We're not victims, we're not bullies too. We're warriors first. To create life. All right, another intervention under setting uh, limits on our choices is asking questions. I love asking questions. Like a mirror, questions require people, push people, force people to go objective on themselves. I had this couple a while back, and they had a little baby, and um, she's kind of controlling, and he is um, kind of compliant. So she says, I'm going to take a shower, hold the baby. So he's holding the baby. The baby immediately goes to sleep, and he puts the baby in the little baby swing. She comes out of the shower, and she says, I told you to hold the baby. Why aren't you holding the baby? You know these people? A lot of people like that. Well, he's a kind of compliant guy, and he starts stumbling all over himself. Well, I mean, the baby went to sleep, and so I thought, and he starts answering her question. But inside, he always feels very angry and controlled at her. So I started teaching him to think about asking questions back. In other words, she says, why aren't you holding the baby? Don't make excuses. Don't fight her. I want him to say this. Wow, honey, I'm not sure if that's a question or a criticism or an attack. Which one do you think it is? Do you hear what happened? She asked a question. It wasn't a question. Was that a question? Why aren't you holding the baby? Is that a question? Mm -mm. Now, if you're a goober, you're going to answer it like a question and then wonder why you're treated so poorly, okay? That's not a question, all right? Um, one um, husband who is starting to really feel the bite of this in their relationship, the wife is really setting some good limits on him. She left the room because he was being really cruel to her. And as she was walking out, he said, I don't understand how you think leaving the room is going to help our relationship. Is this just something you learned from your shrink? Now let me ask you, is that a question? 
99.102% of the people in the world would answer it like a question. Well, I'm doing it because of blah, 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 blah. Hello, it's not a question. It's a criticism veiled as a question. I want to say, you know, I'm not sure if that's a question or a criticism or a veiled attack. If it's a real question, I'd be glad to answer it. Is it a question? I want to sharpen you guys on this because these people are all around you and any of us on a bad day can act this way, okay? By the way, one of the ways you can know it's a question is when you give the answer to a question, someone will say, oh, well, thank you. That's helpful information. That's not what they're going to do. They're going to go, well, that's just ridiculous because, okay, in other words, all a bully wants you to do is to lay down your cards so they can beat you up more, Okay? Why aren't you holding the baby? This is an opportunity to beat you up. It's not a question, okay? You see, there's a certain elegance to these things. We're actually responding with a real awareness, all right? Another distinction I like is that to make a distinction in your mind between style and content. <clears throat> every every um, communication has two aspects of it. And we need to distinguish them. I'll give you an example. Would you pass the salt, please? What's the content of that statement? Salt. What's the style? What's the tone? It's nice. Would you pass the stinking salt? God. What's the content of that conversation? It's still salt. Content hasn't changed. The only thing that changed is salt. Now, if you respond to the content of a loaded style... You're inviting abuse. If you say, well, the salt's right in front of you, or you have too much salt in your diet anyway, you're basically writing that signed affidavit, you can treat me like garbage and demand I pass salt, and I'll be willing to interact with you. And then we wonder why we treat it that way. I want you to respond to the content, okay? I got a client whose dad's a big blowhard. And, you know, he's home for the holidays or something, and dad's dad. And dad comes in the house, and he's like, what do you think of parking like that? All right, and this guy's kind of compliant. And so he goes and's like, well, I thought maybe you need to get the garbage out later on, or blah, 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 blah. And I wonder why he's picked on by his dad, right? But he started addressing style. His dad comes in and says, What do you think of parking like that? And he goes, Whoa, Pop, I don't think I want to have a conversation that begins with that much volatility. Thank you very much. I'm not going to talk about the parking. The parking's not the issue. The style is the issue. All right? And I have a zillion clients who would say, I thought you needed to move the garbage, and then would wonder why they're treated so poorly, okay? That you will be treated as poorly as you permit. And you have real power and obligation to your own life and to theirs to actually learn what it looks like to stop permitting it, Okay? Um, I had a couple once, and the husband was basically uh, a very petulant eight-year-old dressed up in a man's body. But he told his wife one night, he's like, why don't, you, why don't you dress all, like, sexy and all? I mean, you know, you're always wearing, like, slouchy clothes and slippers and stuff. And she's, she's kind of a spicy, feisty girl, and she goes, what? You want me, like, in my Vera Wang while I watch Mrs. Maisel? Like, I hate you, leave me alone, which was her intervention. Um, and that's fun. I mean, you know, 
but it's actually engaging this nonsense, okay? What I taught her to say was, you know what? I don't really do cruel, demeaning, kind of cutting conversations like that. Kind of, homie, don't really hear that anymore. I don't really have those kind of conversations. And if you talk to me that way, you know, I love you, but you're not going to, not only you're not going to get sexy, you're not going to get me, okay? And we set a limit in how we respond to them. Um, I like this, this intervention about style turned around backwards, too. A lot of times when you talk to a jerky person, hey, you know what you did the other day? That hurt me. That felt bad. They'll turn the style thing around on you. That kind of felt bad that you did that the other day. Oh, my gosh. You are so judgmental. Everything has to be just your way, doesn't it? I mean, it's not just the way you want it. Then I have, you're like, I did it wrong again. You're so judgmental. So self-righteous. So sensitive. In other words, we try to bring a legitimate complaint and they invalidate it by condemning our style. So, what do you say to that? I want to say, oh no, I don't want to be judgmental. It's the last thing in the world I want to do. So, would you help me? Would you teach me how I can talk to you about how hurtful you are in a way that doesn't sound judgmental? I want to learn. And usually they can't and won't. And I'll say, that's interesting because you really want to beat me up for how judgmental I am, but you're not really even willing to help me learn to be different. Fascinating. Interesting. Mirror. Okay? So what I'm essentially saying is, well, so will you teach me how to tell you that you're a narcissistic jerk in kind of a way that doesn't feel bad? You know, that's kind of what I'm saying to him. But anyway... I find this kind of teaching completely absent in Christian circles. We say go back and try to win them over without a word and go be more submissive and all that kind of jazz and those relationships get worse. But we don't talk about this kind of intervention in Christian circles. This is one of the reasons this feels a little out there to you. And it feels like you couldn't do this yourself yet. Yet. Okay? But 50% of the marriages I work with are this victim-controller dynamic. And the victim spouse, the only way out of it is for the victim spouse to become empowered. Here's a real interesting puzzler that I've just found through my practice. In a marriage, at least, the only person who has power to engage and set limits on a difficult spouse is that spouse. I can't tell you how many times. It took me like 20 years to learn this. I would sit in my office with couples and there'd be a bully and I would say to him or to her, like, oh, that was really kind of a cutting, cruel way you just talked to your spouse. And they'd immediately write me off and go see one of the other therapists. They've seen every therapist in town until they get called out. And then one day I realized as I was going back and forth with this jerky person that the oppressed spouse was sitting there watching it, like Wimbledon. And I started asking a different question. What do you do when she talks to you like that? And I realized that I was losing the greatest power source I had, the spouse. Because once that spouse gets empowered, the bully starts to back down, okay? The reason that's so, I alluded to um, earlier, is that bottom line is that bullies are really kind of weak. In other words, they really need their spouse very much. That's why their temper is so fragile, okay? In other words... Strong people don't need to have a volatile temper. They're grounded, okay? And once we get strong, bullies are kind of weak. And once we get strong, they kind of fold. I see it over and over and over again. 
So I had this couple a while back, and he would just verbally just hammer her and criticize her relentlessly, and then she'd leave for work, and then he would call her on the phone. Now, of course, you know what she would do. She would answer it, right? Well, it was very interesting, and I started asking her. I said, okay, so he completely humiliated you all morning. Um, did you want to answer the phone? And she said, well, yeah, I mean, you know, it would just feel unkind to not do so. And I'm like, if Bozo ever thought about being unkind, we wouldn't be sitting here. What would it be like to go with what your gut says, your heart says, and not answer the phone? And she started doing that, and it was fascinating. He started to decompensate. He would panic and start calling her friends and texting her and worrying if she was okay. And you saw real quick that he was very, 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 very fragile, needy, scared when she pulled away from him. And she rebalanced the family and, and saved the marriage because she stopped him from acting out on his frailty, okay? This is super important. With uh, aggressor, oppressor spouse, the strength of the oppressed spouse is the marriage therapy. You growing to respond to your aggressive spouse is the marriage therapy. Marriage therapy is not something that takes place in some room with a guy with a couch, okay? Therapy is any relationship in which we, in which we'll, we get what we need to grow, Okay, And people always talk about somebody who's a jerk and they're like, oh, well, it's just, we can only get him in therapy. No. If they want to come to therapy, you go. And as you grow in your Jedi skills, what happens is they will change. It's like a baby mobile. If you change one of the things on a baby mobile, the whole baby mobile will shift. And if you stop playing your role as the oppressed victim and answering that phone call when the jerk calls you back, it will change the dynamic. I see it every time. And a lot of times, the spouse, the jerky spouse won't even know why. They'll just start being different. I actually made a bet with a woman once. I said, you, do, you learn this stuff. It'll take you a few months, but you learn this stuff, and your husband will change. She goes, not a chance. And I said, chance? I said, I'll tell you what, I'll bet you. She said, what do you mean? I said, you give up later on, like this isn't working, I'll give you a free session. But if he changes, you bring me a gift certificate to Nick's restaurant for two. Me and my wife are going to dinner. <laughs> and about six months later, she walks in the office. She's like, slaps that gift certificate down. I said, good stuff, huh? She's like, yeah. All right. Next, consequences we create. In other words, we need to sometimes give them a cost that we generate. We've pulled back from them. I'm not going to interact with you. I'm not going to have this conversation. I'm not going to answer your phone call. Those are just kind of natural consequences of it. But we can also engage consequences we put on them. I have a, a, a couple a while back who's, the husband would flirt blatantly all the time with women. At parties, at, at work, um, out shopping, heck. Um, and it was really humiliating to his wife, and um, she actually wondered, you know, if it kind of went further. But historically, she had always been very mousy and victim-y, and he, she would say, that feels really terrible to me, and he would just kind of blow her off. But then his mother gets sick, and he comes to her, and he says, will you help me care for my mother? Now, she's done a lot of growth, and she isn't mousy anymore. She's super fly TNT. She's the guns of Navarone. 
And she says this to him. Yeah, I would love to help you. But I have a question first. Are you saying that you want the kind of relationship in which when one of us asks the other one for something, that we're open to that? (laughs) Because that's not how you relate to me. I've asked you on so many occasions about how you relate to other women, and you immediately write me off. Are you saying you want to change our relationship into being one in which when one of us brings a need to the other, the other is receptive to it? If that's so, then absolutely I'll help you with your mother. But that's not the way you relate to me, so I'm just a little confused. Which kind of relationship do you want to have? One in which we care for one another or one in which we don't? As soon as you answer that question for me, I will answer your question about whether I will help you with your mother. Mic drop. That's how Jesus talked, man. And it got his attention. He changed. He got into therapy. She used this power to help him change. Now, by the way, this is not retaliation. Retaliation is, oh, now little mister wants something from me. (laughs) Not a chance, big boy, okay? This is basically just relating to people according to the rules of the universe, according to reality. Let me ask it this way. You go to a shoe store, and you walk in, and they go, we don't sell shoes to stupid-looking people with big feet like you. Now, let me ask you, are you more or less likely to buy shoes from that store? Now, is that because you want to punish the store? Is it because you're the store's mommy? Is it because you want to teach it a lesson? No, we're just not inclined to engage stores that talk to us like that. Okay? That's just reality. And my clients who have spouses who are chronic jerks and they keep going back and playing the same game are people who keep going back into that same shoe store and going, I don't know why they're so mean to me. Okay? In fact, if we continue relating to hurtful people as if it doesn't change us, we're actually distorting reality to them. We're lying. We're saying you can spend a dollar and not have a dollar less, okay? I have a a client a while back whose wife was really cruel to him, and he was super sweet. Um, We nicknamed him Lance a lot. He was just noble and good. And, and his wife was like a shopaholic and kind of a, you know, she was a scamp. But um, he was always trying to engage her and make their relationship better. And, and what she would do is just cut him down and push back on him and say, it, it kind of even hurts me, babe, when you talk to me like this. And she'd go, God, quit being such a crybaby. Ugh. Now, as he grew, he got sort of strong enough to stop engaging her some and stop relating to her all stops open, giving her all the goodies of being married. So along comes Valentine's, and he doesn't do anything. He doesn't set up a date, no flowers, no chocolate, whatever. And she's like, well, some Valentine's this is. We're not going out to dinner. You didn't bring me anything. And he said, you know, not real sure what to say. I really do want that kind of relationship with you. But frankly, the way in which you treat me has killed that part of me more and more and more. And so I'm kind of stuck. I want that part of us more too. Um, But I don't really think I can be close to you the way that you historically treat me. So yeah, no Valentines. No us. 
Not now at least. And she started to cry. For the first time. Hurtful people will never change. Unless they experience consequences. In their lives. From us about it. Sometimes people will also say to me. Well this feels like parenting. I don't want to be like the mommy. Setting limits and consequences on my spouse. And I remind them. That setting consequences. And telling the truth. Is not parenting. Okay. Parents often do these things. Because parents are relating to chronically irresponsible people. It just so happens that you have to be married to a chronically irresponsible person who, for some reason, is not a child, okay? So it's not parenting, it's godliness, okay? Here's another one of my favorite lines that I won't have to repeat because it's written up here. Love keeps no records of wrongs, but sometimes y'all wisdom must. Or else you're a knucklehead. That's a technical term. All right, hierarchy. Sometimes we need to bring in third parties with more severe issues. Notice we're getting more, more severe here. Sometimes you need to bring in third parties. We need to break the power of the secret. Here's another secret of the universe. Uh, that one kind of got overlapped, but you can read it. Chronic jerkiness and bulliness only works in secret. I cannot tell you how many times I've talked to spouses who, of course, their spouse won't come to therapy. And I'm like, gosh, who else knows that she's treating you like this, that he's acting this way to you? And they're like, oh, nobody. I mean, I, I mean have you told your dad? No, 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 I wouldn't want my family to think ill of them. Hear me once and hear me twice on this. Bullying only works in secret. If you have a relationship or a friend who's in a relationship or whatever in which there's hurtful stuff going on chronically, you got to break the secret. Okay, God says bring in other parties, bring in the church, bring in their, your, your big brother, okay, somebody outside the system. I had a couple once and he would wait until they were confined in the car to start berating her. There's no escape, right? They're going 80 miles an hour and he would just rail on her. And she's just like, what do you do then, doc? And I said, well, what about third parties? And so she talked to one of his friends and said, you know how so-and-so has such a rage problem and he rages at me and I really need help. I need an advocate. I need a third party. Would you be willing for me to call you when he does it? And the dude's like, absolutely. And so they'd get in the car. He'd start railing. She'd call the phone and like, and even if it went to voicemail, the guy would get a, like a dandy little recording when he opened up his voicemail. And, and, the, and the yeller stopped. There was accountability, okay? Am I talking to you psychology here or what God tells us? Right, both. So you got to break the secret. All right, lastly, what I call a disciplinary separation. Now, I like this word. I may have made up this word because it gets at what I'm trying to say. I'm not talking about like the, well, we need to separate. I'm not talking about a step toward divorce. Disciplinary separation is one of the things that Paul talks about all the time of like have nothing to do with such people. In other words, if this person is chronically hurtful and chronically destructive, it might be really legitimate 
to pull away from them. A separateness that's not designed to end the relationship, but a separateness that's designed like it's open heart surgery to really intervene in a powerful way for the situation. Okay? So, you got this person who's that hurtful, don't hesitate to go live at the brother's house. Or, you know, I have a, I have a couple who, um, he was um, cheating, got caught, and she asked him to live somewhere else for a while. Totally legit. I mean, he kind of had to do some work before it felt right for her to let him come back, all right? So that kind of separation is sort of like, I'm not going to be in the room with you if you're going to talk to me like this. This is sort of like, I'm not going to be in the house with you if you're going to treat me like this. So notice how these interventions get higher and higher and higher, okay? Now, notice I said this works 90% of the time. This is not a miracle cure. This is not raise up your spouse in the way that he would go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Um, This is interventions with people. We can't control them, but we can certainly intervene. And at that point, we're in the same position God is. He's like, I'm going to bring this into your life. Please learn. What a wise person does is they look at the fruit of what's happening and they learn. What a fool does is they look at the fruit of what's happening and they don't learn. And some people won't. But I want you to be thinking in these categories. I want you to start thinking, you know, if I feel oppressed by somebody, there are interventions there. Go listen to this talk again, okay? I'm going to write a book on this one day. I think this is so important. This is the science of engaging difficult people. When 1 Thessalonians 5 talks about rebuking the unruly, this is a psychologist looks at what that actually sounds like. How do you wisely, powerfully rebuke, okay? And as we said last night, if you're jerky and you want to grow, remember the two ingredients. Let's see, I think I wrote them down here. Yeah. You need some insight and some understanding, and you need the experience of having a limit consequence on you. One of my clients was seeing me, it was actually for depression, but he also had lots of anger stuff and was railing on his kids all the time. And so he told them, next time I go rageful on you guys, I'm doing your chores for a week. And he did. So like me in the man cave. And his, 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 his kids are sitting there looking out the window. He's a surgeon watching him roll the garbage to the street before he gets in his Mercedes to go do surgery, you know. And you, you can't imagine what a gift that was to his kids, all right? So let's stop there. Let's take a break. Let's come back at 1030.